What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Welcome to What London Can Be, the podcast where we navigate our shifting world, shine a light on the issues our community is facing, and explore the innovative Made in London and Middlesex County solutions to critical challenges in our community. I'm Diane Silva, Director of Philanthropy at London Community Foundation. Today I'll be speaking with Corey Allison, Executive Director of the Women's Rural Resource Centre in Strathroy. The WRRC provide vital resources and supports to women living in rural Middlesex County. And with the COVID-19 pandemic continuing to take a toll on our communities, these supports are even more essential. Corey is an advocate for gender equality. She's an activist and a leader in her community. I'm thrilled to have Corey on the show to share her perspective on the issues she's seeing in her community and beyond. Hi, Corey. Nice to have you on our show today. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. Good. And for our listeners who don't know who you are, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself and what led you to Women's Rural Resource Center? Uh, Such a good question. Um, I am rural born. I grew up in Lambton County. So rural is in my DNA. Uh, My my family had a, uh, my grandfather's farm was in Lambton County, and then we all lived around. Um, I went on to university at Guelph. That was my introduction to women's studies, which kind of rocked my world. My family would say that was the year I got angry. And uh, then I left school and I did my field work. I was a nanny in Germany, and then I served in uh, pubs there. And uh, I, th- I share that because I think that's where I really saw the invisible power at work. And that's where I learned, you know, that's um, the privilege and the oppression that made me go towards women's work, seeing how that played out in the world. And then I came back. I did a stint on a pig farm. I fell in a student role at a nonprofit. I had no idea really what it was, but I had a really amazing leader who uh, fostered leadership in me. And I just sort of fell in love with this leadership thing. I did fund development was my path sort of through organizations. And then I landed as an executive director at the Women's Rural Resource Center. I'm now also the executive director of the Women's uh, or the Huron Women's Shelter in in uh, Huron County, and um, I'm a life coach. So I, I uh, have a private practice doing uh, leadership coaching on the side too. I'm a mother, I have a 17 year old son. Uh, I still love rural, I'll always live in small communities. And I think that's it. No, that's amazing. I didn't know that about you. And <laughs> it's a very nonlinear path. <laughs> yeah, but all of the, everything just seems so interconnected, even with what you're doing yeah. on the side with your leadership coaching. Um, I yes. think that's all relevant to what you do. Good for you. Um, Thank you. Okay. And would you mind describing uh, the work that is done at Women's Rural Resource Center and how that might be different uh, given your location, like, the, you know, how those services may differ? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. In the rural context okay. versus the city context. So, sure. yeah. So we are a, a 15-bed emergency shelter for families, women and children who've been impacted by gender-based violence. Um, The shelter is probably what we're most known for. We're called the shelter in the county. Uh, We have a 24-hour crisis line and crisis response is at the core of our work. With that, we do risk assessment, 
um, safety planning, uh, helping women plan to leave. We also work with women who are choosing to stay. Um, and then we do uh, system navigation. So work, you know, walking with them through housing systems, child protection systems, court systems, immigration. Um, and then we do the work of the heart. So, you know, what we call healing, we have counseling for women and children. And we do a lot of group work and are really expanding our healing work to include wellness, self-discovery, things like meditation and breathing, um, yoga, just looking at the whole, the whole person. And that's both part of our prevention work uh, as well as helping a woman, you know, start over and really become who she is becoming in life after what's happened to her. Excellent. And I do believe you do a lot of work around advocacy and activism. And if you could yeah. describe um, what that looks like, that would be great. Sure. So we, we describe ourselves as a feminist organization. So the big F word that scares everyone. Um, and we also say we're, uh, you know, we're always aiming to be trauma informed and um, anti-racism, anti-oppression, which is uh, in this world, always a journey, never an arrival. Um, and then our feminism, our activism is something that we, uh, I think that's something that can look very different in a rural community versus an urban setting. So while our, our services are often the same, the way that we navigate some of the really challenging um, power structures and big topics in our community is through relationship. And uh, so sometimes that means that we're not taking the loudest positional stance, um, but we're often working in the background to create alternative narratives. How can we call people in to seeing this differently? How can we, um, through relationship, speak truth to power um, and, and work away at the edges uh, of the power systems that play in our community. And I, I contrast this to our urban partners because I have so much respect for their ability to be the activists front and center, which is necessary in this work also. Nothing has been accomplished without um, you know, hard activism. And so I think together we really complement each other. Very nice. Um, so my next question is going to probably touch on a little bit about your observations from your past work. Like you mentioned, you worked in the service industry in, in a yeah. restaurant or bar. Yeah. And uh, so unequal pay, gender-based violence, misogyny, and sexism. Most of our listeners are aware of these universal systemic issues. Are there any challenges unique to rural environments that women are facing? And maybe if you could draw on some of those experiences just from your observations? Yeah, so I think in a rural environment, we tend to be more conservative uh, in our, well, for sure our politics and our uh, beliefs. And so um, that's not to say or to minimize the progressive, uh, you know, an expansive thinking and innovation that comes out of rural communities. But these more conservative communities, uh, make it very challenging for those who live in the margins because there is more contract. There's not um, the same just number of people to connect with who, you know, who might be, you might have an affinity or likeness to, but there is um, harder lines of in and out in a rural community. And there is less anonymity because we 
work together. We play together. We know everybody's business if we're not related to them. And uh, so there is uh, a knowing that travels through the community about people's story. And that can create so much harm if you live in the margins and are I'm feeling isolated. There's not a lot of places to go and connect without feeling that you're being seen and put in a box. Um, so this is really challenging. I think uh, for women in particular, I'm going to touch on the, you know, the pay piece. And as, an, as a leader of an organization that is, you know, for 30 years employed women, it's important to me that we're providing, uh, you know, a career path that women can enter and, and grow and learn uh, for a certain amount of time and, you know, come in who they are and leave um, more of who they are, uh, that during that time they're treated well, that they're um, paid fairly, and that they can have a meaningful, meaningful uh, career and grow as a leader um, while living in their small community. So I just know so many times, uh, you know, women go off to school and then to get a job in the area they want, they have to leave their community. And that's a really hard choice because I think um, the more talent and leadership that we can retain in women in our rural communities, the richer, more vibrant, more connected we are. And so I think in a rural community, I'm not sure we're talking enough about how we are retaining and creating meaningful. When I say meaningful, I also am talking about, um, you know, good compensation, fair compensation, opportunities to grow, opportunities to step into leadership. Um, these are all important for women. Absolutely. Um, and kind of stick, sticking with this theme, uh, what were some of the gendered impacts of the pandemic in your community or maybe others? If you could shed some light on oh. that. So th this is like, uh, this was the hardest part of the pandemic and also this, the silver lining of the pandemic was it created something that was a, a gap that was already there, already existed pressures on women that already existed. So women taking majority responsibility for unpaid care work of children and elder um, people in our communities uh, and exasperated it. And to the point where women had to choose between either giving up their work, leaving their work, maybe leaving opportunities, setting them behind in their career path for the sake of taking care of our community through the pandemic. The beauty of that being so visible and is that um, well, one, it was counted. So there's now research coming out from the pandemic that's actually counting through a gendered lens how this impacted women differently. And we don't do anything in our world without evidence. So now we have evidence of what we already knew. Um, and it was uh, a shared visceral experience. There was, you know, I can speak from my own life and my own team. The pandemic it took an emotional toll. There was an emotional labor that women in particular were carrying. Uh, and they were, you know, if they, so in our organization, many women chose to continue working while also homeschooling and they may have flexed their time, um, but it still meant that their day, they did their, their eight hour shift with us, but they were doing their six hour teaching shift with their children and then caring for the emotional needs of their whole family as well. Yeah. And what kind of responses have you seen from various levels of government to women's issues um, mm. since the pandemic? You know. Well, so this is 
you know, even so I'll speak specific to our sector. So we were named um, a congregate living center and that put us in uh, like the likes of long-term care homes. And so under the emergency order, there was restrictions put in place to protect public health and to protect our most vulnerable people that had implications on women in the workforce. So women were predominantly holding these roles, care roles, service roles and hospitality. And so you just saw where women were hit so hard um, by the pandemic. Uh, for our organization in particular, you know, that reduced, uh, those restrictions meant we had to reduce our beds um, significantly. So we went from having uh, eight rooms down to three rooms. That meant we had to focus our shelter intervention on the highest risk women. And so there was all of these other women who could have benefited from the shelter intervention, uh, who we had to say no to for space. Now, and let me qualify, if there was immediate risk, we made sure we did hotels, we worked with our sisters across the province. There was no one that we left in immediate um, danger. But we said no, we, we said no in places where we weren't comfortable saying no. And we were creative. We had to work with women in other ways, but we knew that they were staying in a house that had risk and danger to it. Um, their partner was probably home from work uh, or could it, at, in many times in the home more than he was before. All the public places where she could seek reprieve, libraries, community centers were closed. So she was in this you know, sort of hotbed in her own home. And we had to say, uh, no, that created immense pressure, both on the women we're serving and on our team. Um, it also meant th that we had to reduce our staffing, some of the restrictions, we had to reduce our staffing. So we had a single team member um, in the shelter managing everyone in the shelter, the one, the helpline, 24 hour helpline, um, with no, even in the, you know, the administrative roles that are, were usually there during the day were offsite. So what happens is you, we had this um, very isolate, people were working in isolation, people were living in isolation en masse. Um, and so, you know, I understand the why. I know that there was um, decisions around health that were really important to, to uh, some of these, to make these restrictions. They were critical. I wouldn't want to be the people that had to make those decisions. I also recognized that while they were intended to keep people safe, it actually created more risk for lots of the women that we were serving. And it was not supportive of health in other, you know, other aspects of health. Um, it protected us from COVID, but there was other impacts to our health that we're still wearing uh, from that. So that was, so I think your question was, you know, government decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, that impacted us through COVID yep. in a rural community. I would I would say that was, did I answer that right? You, you did. Um, and in okay. fact, what I would like to uh, touch on a little bit further is the funding piece. Um, because some agencies would say that um, there were less restrictions with funding. Other agencies would say there were more restrictions with funding. Mm -hmm. um, in your view, how, do you, how did you see this play out during the pandemic? And what would you like to see going forward in helping mobilize um, the work that you're doing, you know, with women? Yeah, so this is really interesting because when the pandemic hit, I would say, uh, so women shelters are good at crisis. We've been, it's our bag. We do crisis 
all the time. So when the pandemic hit, we kicked into full gear and we were making decisions with the information we had and putting plans into place. And what I found was our ministry, which is higher up, you know, and they have lots more to organize, uh, were behind us in terms of having a plan ready to implement. They were being as responsive as they could, but because we're on the ground and we know it's needed and we're used to acting fast and responsively, we were able to act faster. Um, and so what happened was in those early days, I'm going to say those first three months, our funders were coming to us and saying, what do you need? Um, how can we help? There was this more even playing ground um, because it wasn't seen as one side having the answers. There was a, a more balance of power in the, in the relationship with our funders. I experienced that in the early days. Uh, that was also, there was a currency of trust. So there was a point in which our funders said, listen, one of the ways we're going, one of the decisions we're going to make is that you have full reign to use the funding where it's needed without, um, you know, they just give us more latitude rather than being funded specifically for, you know, this much for this, this much for this. They said, here's your big bucket, use this as needed. And uh, the impact of that is that we could be robust, we could be proactive, we could be strategic, and we could be creative. And, uh, you know, so the funds, I would say funds actually got used more effectively and with the greatest impact possible because we had that leverage. And then I'd also say that our relationship with our funder felt more balanced because there was trust. They, there was an inherent trust in here's the resources. We trust you. Come back and tell us what you did with them. Um, talk to us about what you're going to do. You know, and there was this trust in our relationship that felt uh, a balanced in power. I keep saying there was a power balance in that, that I hope continues. I think that that is, I, um, our funders also expressed the same. I think it felt uh, I think it felt trusting for them also. I think they were happy to engage in part more like partners. Yeah. And I'm glad you did shed some light on that because that is a struggle that I find even as our foundation, mm. when we're working with agencies, um, we're really trying, because we're now more aware of that trust-based philanthropy, how important that is. Uh, because as the agencies, you are the experts, right? And you know that you have to adapt quickly. So we're trying to be more mindful of that and encourage our donors to do the same and think more like that too. So I appreciate that you shed that perspective of how uh, impactful that was in the way you were able to operate, right? Did you want to say anything further around that, or? Oh, I was gonna. I was just gonna say it's. Um, and I also understand this. Uh, you know, there's um, there's an accountability as well. So it's. Uh, I'm interested for donors. What is it like to trust us with your funds? And then, what does accountability mean when you give us more rain in how we spend? That feels like an exciting conversation. <laughs> For sure. And that's something that we hope to see more of. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, going back to leadership, um, how, what do you want to see um, change or what have you, what are some of the positives you've seen and what do you hope to see going forward um, around leadership? And, you know, we're 
you know, there's elections on the horizon. And <laughs> so what should people be paying attention to? Well, it's funny because when you say leadership, I go to our organization identified leadership as one of our core values when we did our last strategic planning. And uh, it it actually then transpired into being one of our core strategies for, uh, you know, the the um, years, the, the plan we're now working through. And uh, it was important to us to expand our leadership. And for us, that means um, expanding the impact that we can have in the world. And we identified leadership. We borrowed a, a definition from the Coactive um, Institute that identifies a leader as anyone who, um, everyone taking responsibility for their world. So, so a woman, when we, when we are working with a woman, the greatest impact we can have is that she understands the responsibility she has to drive her life. And that she it kind of roots in and grounds in that I have the power to be the driver in my own life. And with that, there is responsibility. I'm responsible for my impact. So when we take that up to being an organization, you know, we are responsible to be very intentional about the impact we're having in the women's lives that we're working with, but also our community where we're operating in. And for us, that means uh, sometimes standing in the fire, so being willing to say the hard things, being willing to offer another narrative or perspective on a really tough issue. Um, and our one of the, you know, for us, our leadership is about being able to offer those perspectives without creating division. That's That for me right now is the leadership we need. Um, you know, whether it's in our prime minister or at the helms of organizations or women in their own life, more spaciousness in our leadership, deep curiosity. So seeking to understand at all costs when there's tension and resistance, rather than trying to make that resistance go away or feel better about it, which, you know, unfortunately when it comes to politics, what I experience and see is, you know, uh, once there's tension or difference, we cut the other off at the knees, <laughs> rather than the power of stay and sitting with our, you know, whoever's before us, whoever is different from us, and approaching them with deep curiosity, um, finding out what it is we care about together, and then working to that from whatever place we sit. So that that is, um, you know, that's a that's sort of a broad it's not a specific answer, but I, I think right now at this time when things are so divisional, leadership for us is creating spaces of coming together and being connected. Yeah, and I, I know that makes sense, what you're saying. It's more about having a deeper understanding of the realities of everyone's unique situations. Yeah. And then how do you yeah. find solutions, right? So, no, that's, yes. that's very good. And now looking forward, what do you think London and Middlesex County can be and how can we get there together? So I'm sure a mm -hmm. lot of our listeners are, are uh, wanting to, you know, uh, you know, draw uh, affect change. So, yeah, what do you think? I'm going to borrow our organization's vision, which is a vibrant and connected community where people can live in healthy relationships. So I think London Middlesex, Middlesex London could be vibrant and connected. Um, and the way we, I think I just sort of said, but I think leadership 
in each of us is the way it's that's our our way to get there so each of us taking responsibility for our own impact each of us coming deeply curious into relationship with those around us um, being willing to say the truth even when it might disrupt or uh, you know create some chaos or but knowing that's in service of the deeper truth that will bring us um, that will keep us connected and it will create vibrancy in our community beautiful all right well thank you Corey, for being on our show and uh for your time um i think i know for me i've i learned a lot from listening to you and uh i'm sure our listeners as well and i would like to continue keep you engaged with us because i think there's a lot to uncover around gender inequalities and uh the differences with urban and rural um, realities. So uh, thank you for your time and for opening our eyes to that. So, you know, I'll, if I could uh, just say one more thing, Diane, it would be that um, we have a saying in our team that the kettle's always on. And so you, a woman does not need to wait until a crisis to come through our doors. And if you are a caring community member who's just curious about what we're doing, we also welcome you to come and have a cup of tea with us and learn. Um, it's uh, yeah, we're there and we welcome you into our community. Beautiful. Into the RC. Thank you. Well, thank you and have a great day. You too. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What London Can Be. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn how to subscribe to this podcast and for more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca slash whatlondoncanbe. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for joining us.